Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. The current civil war in Yemen has made headlines since it began in 2014 for the significant humanitarian catastrophe that has unfolded throughout the conflict. Nearly 250,000 Yemenis have been killed since it began, and the indiscriminate assault on civilian life from a coalition of countries spearheaded by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and backed by Western nations like the US and even Australia have been designated as war crimes by people on the ground in Yemen and international observers. The war has seemingly reached another gear of destruction in the last month or so. To make sense of the conflict as well as recent developments, we're talking to Dr. Shireen Al-Adimi. Shireen is an assistant professor at Michigan State University and is an organizer, activist, trying to end the United States' role in the Yemen conflict. Shireen, thank you for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thanks so much for having me. Yemen is a country with a long history of both conflict and revolutionary struggle. It was in the past under colonial occupation by the Ottoman Empire and by Britain. It fought a really pivotal civil war in the 90s after decolonization. And it was for a long time also divided into two countries, North and South. The country is now officially unified as a single nation, but recent conflict has been between the government forces led by President Hadi and the rebel Ansar Allah movement, no more colloquially as the Houthis. Dr. Shireen, obviously this is an extremely complex situation, but I was wondering if you could outline briefly the history of the major forces of this current conflict. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, there are many routes to the conflict, but I think the most obvious one is uh, 2011. As you may remember, at the time, various Arab nations were revolting against longtime dictators, and Yemen had its own, you know, Arab Spring movement, I guess, in January 2011. And initially, it started off as a peaceful protest led by civilian population, um, and they were interested in ousting then-President Saleh, who had been ruling Yemen for about 33 years at the time. But it ended up being a power struggle among various other political parties that kind of co-opted the revolution of the people. And it turned into an armed struggle, but it eventually led to his stepping down and handing over power essentially to the President Hadi, who he mentioned is the UN recognized, internationally recognized president of Yemen. People like to say he's elected, but he was really, he stood in a one-man election, um, kind of a symbolic election to as an interim president who had a two-year presidency where he was supposed to bring various parties together and avoid uh, civil war. So what happened during that time is that he failed miserably and uh, resigned twice um, and took back his resignation at some point. And uh, this group that you mentioned, Ansarullah, who are from northern Yemen, ended up kind of staging these uh, protests due to the government's withdrawal of fuel subsidies in the summer of 2014. And the movement gained momentum and eventually led to them taking over the capital, outright taking over the capital, Sana'a, and placing Hadi under house arrest. Now, in the middle of all of this, there was still hope for Yemenis because in early 2015, they were able to sign a unity government uh, or to agree to a unity coalition government that would have included all parties. 
And this was facilitated by the then UN envoy to Yemen, Jamal bin Omar, who writes in Newsweek that he actually was uh, just waiting for a place to sign the agreement. They had agreed on all aspects of the government and Saudi Arabia wanted the signature to take place in their country. And so he was surprised when two days later, the Saudis began bombing. So this is kind of what led us to early 2015 when the Saudi-led intervention began and it turned what was a civil conflict, civil strife into an outright international attack on Yemen. The Hadi government forces have seen strong support from two major players in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. A range of Western nations, including the United States, United Kingdom, France and even Australia, have sold large amounts of weapons and military equipment to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Weapons that have been used in ways that many, including the United Nations, consider war crimes. That includes aerial assaults that are indiscriminately attacking civilians, targeted destruction of key infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, food and transport facilities, and it's led to the world's worst current humanitarian crisis, a tally of nearly 250,000 deaths since 2015. Dr. Shireen, by the accounts of these Western governments, they're not actively engaged in this conflict. You know, not technically at war with the Houthis in Yemen, in the same way that they were actively sending troops to, say, Afghanistan or Iraq previously. Yet the scale of this military support has been enormous since 2015. So how much of the blame should countries like the United States or even Australia hold for the destruction heaped upon the Yemeni people in this conflict? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's important to understand that this coalition began bombing ostensibly to restore Hadi to power, but he has been essentially uh, stationed in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia this entire time for seven years. He has made official visits to Yemen every now and then where he stays offshore because he has very little popularity in Yemen, even in areas that are controlled by the coalition. So this man has no legitimacy among the Yemeni people, but he seems to be, uh, you know, these countries are really interested in having him back to power because he is the safest bet for them. He could continue supporting Saudi Arabian and UAE interests in Yemen, just as the previous president had for 30 odd years. Um, but in terms of these countries' support, Western countries' support, it's crucial for the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition, to um, to have the support of countries like the U.S., U.K. are major players, and then other countries who sold weapons to the coalition, including Australia, like you mentioned. The Saudis and the Emiratis don't manufacture their own weapons, um, so they rely exclusively on weapon imports. They rely on the U.S. to train their soldiers and their pilots. They rely on the U.S. to maintain their vehicles and their aircrafts and to provide maintenance and spare parts. They rely on support of various countries for to impose the blockade that they've, that they've imposed uh, on Yemen. Um, they rely on the U.S. to share intelligence with them. Um, you know, up until 2018, the U.S. was providing mid-air refueling to the coalition. Now they don't provide it mid-air. They just provide it in a base in Saudi Arabia. And so... Uh, and even targeting support, you have uh, UK and U US generals in the command room um, choosing targets for the Saudi-led coalition. So every step of the way, these countries have been part of the coalition, even if officially they say we're not part of the coalition. But in the context of the US Congress, the US Congress recognized that in fact, the US's participation in this war amounts to a violation of the constitution, a violation of federal law, because it turns out that in the US, <clears throat> 
only the president has, or sorry, only Congress has authority to go to war. But every president since this, you know, law became uh, law in 1973 has violated this law. And yet Congress only challenged President Trump in 2019 for his role in Yemen. So even though the U.S. says they're not part of the coalition officially, the amount of support that they've provided essentially amounts to, um, you know, a violation of U.S. federal law as Congress. So I think they share a huge part of the blame, and it's completely disingenuous for countries to say that they're concerned about the situation in Yemen, while they themselves are either officially part of the coalition or have been fueling the coalition in, 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 in various ways, including weapon sales and logistics and training and so forth. According to the United Nations, last January was arguably the highest recorded casualties reported since the war began in 2014. On January 20 of this year, the Saudi-led coalition carried out airstrikes on a critical Yemeni port city, destroying communications towers that wiped out the internet across the entire country for four days. Um, that port was also a key entry point, not only for imports like food, but other essential humanitarian aid. It was one in a long line of recent Saudi-led strikes, destroying residential areas, key infrastructure, killing or wounding at least 100 civilians, many of them children. Shireen, why does it seem to be that the targeting of Yemeni civilians is a key tactic used um, by these forces? You know, while not ever seizing during the start of the conflict also, why has it seemingly reached another gear in the last month? Mm-hmm. Um, I think since the beginning of this war, the Saudi-led coalition has shown a complete disregard to human lives in Yemen. Uh, there was a leaked UN report back in 2016, I believe, that called the targeting of civilians systematic and intentional, and why systematic and widespread. And you know, there's recognition even among U.S. officials that um, even when the U.S. does help them choose targets, they seem to either intentionally target civilians or um, are just sloppy about it. I think it's clear that the, that the targeting has been intentional. This is a coalition that has targeted hospitals countless times, including five different airstrikes on Doctors Without Borders hospitals. And Doctors Without Borders has come out and said, we've given you the coordinates of our hospital. We have cleared it with you and you still bombed us. And so they have no uh, excuse really. And this is the coalition that bombs people in their homes and their funerals, weddings, um, moving vehicles are a target, children uh, are, have been targets, um, and a coalition that's targeted even a bus full load of children um, in 2018, in summer 2018, when they killed 40 children who were on a field trip in a school bus. So if they're going to target children under the age of 12, between the ages of 6 and 12, on a field trip, then there are no red lines for this coalition. Uh, they've also targeted like you mentioned, food, food and water sources, including most recently in this escalation where they targeted a uh, water resources in the northern province of Saba that you know, sh shut off water supply to 126,000 people. And this has been their tactic since the beginning. They target infrastructure, they target food sources, they target water sources, knowing that Yemen is uh, very poor. It's the poorest country in the Middle East, among the poorest in the world. And prior to the war, used to rely on 90% of its food uh, through imports. And so the blockade plays another role here, blockading the country, preventing trade from happening, and then making the population reliant on aid and then using that aid to, you know, strategically kind of as a weapon of war. Uh, these are the tactics that they've employed over and over again. And whether it's in their airstrikes, which, by the way, are on average 30 airstrikes a day since the war began seven years ago. Um, and then 
I guess the other question is why the escalation more recently? So in October of 2020, there was a panel um, that had been operating under the supervision of the UN called the um, uh, Panel of em Eminence Experts. And they kind of served as an independent investigative body for uh, violations of human rights in Yemen. And in October, the UN voted to not continue supporting this panel. And later reports showed that the Saudis and the Emiratis had used threats against various countries to make sure that this panel is defunded. Um, and so ever since then, there's been an escalation of airstrikes because they know for sure that they can operate with impunity, that there is no accountability, that nobody is going to represent Yemen at, you know, in an international uh, setting and say, you know, these are violations against human rights because the international community is either benefiting from the slaughter or is too threatened by Saudi Arabia and the UAE to do anything about it. So this complete operation with complete impu impunity um, has allowed them, has emboldened them to continue doing in Yemen whatever they like. They created the world's worst humanitarian crisis and no one bats an eye. So why not continue and escalate and hope that this is gonna bring uh, them toward their goals. Also with recent Houthi retaliation strikes upon the UAE's domestic, economic and military sites, the Biden administration has suggested they may move to put the Houthis on the designated terrorist list. I mean, it seems somewhat like a bad faith move considering the US support of the Saudi coalition, I mean, which has been committing war crimes throughout the entire conflict. What do you make of this potential move by the Biden administration? I mean, this is just yet another political move. Um, the Biden administration has been, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's surprising, but it's um, uh, very contradictory because Biden made it a campaign promise to end the war in Yemen. I've personally had conversations with his national security advisor who promised left and right and up and down that they were going to end all forms of support for the Saudi-led coalition. They've recognized that this was a terrible thing to have uh, supported in the first place under the Obama administration and through the Trump administration. And yet, uh, and actually one of his first acts as president was to delist the Houthis as terrorists. Trump had listed them as terrorists as one of his last acts to kind of hand it over to the, you know, to his allies, the Saudis and the UAE um, to give them what they wanted at the end. But Biden, when he delisted them, the State Department said that they've listened to the UN, they've listened to aid organizations, they understand that this listing is not appropriate and that it would create a huge humanitarian crisis. And so they delisted them. So for Biden to come around now a year later and announce that he is considering listing them again is honestly uh, a call for genocide because if you are going to list the Houthis as terrorist group um, and misuse whatever this mechanism is, first of all, um, as a political move, then you will starve the entire population of northern Yemen. We're talking 22 million people in that area who rely on aid, who rely on remittances, who, you know, uh, where aid organizations are not going to be able to operate, where banks are not going to be able to operate. And just using the Yemeni population as hostages, um, as collateral damage in order to get the Houthis to surrender. Um, so I, I think this is, if, if this goes through, it'll be one of the most devastating thing anyone has done to escalate this conflict to uh, in a way we've not seen before. And it's a completely, it's purely political move and it's a complete misuse of this uh, FTO designation. To wrap up today, for such a bloody war, Shireen, what is the United States' motive for keeping this conflict going? And what sort of responsibility do governments and citizens in the West, including here in Australia, have towards ending the conflict in Yemen? 
I think they should be questioning their lawmakers why they continue to support um, through weapons the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, to threaten uh, votes for elected officials who won't support, uh, who won't call for an end to weapon sales to the coalition, whether it's the UAE or Saudi Arabia. Absolutely, America's involvement needs to end completely. And also the US has huge leverage with the Saudis and the Emiratis that they're unwilling to use um, to end the war in Yemen. Like I said, the Saudis and the Emiratis have shown their incompetence and have relied almost exclusively on Western support. Um, and the US has huge financial motivations. Trump was very clear about why he continued to support the Saudi-led coalition. And he um, basically said the Saudis pay in cash. You know, they make a lot of money out of the weapon deals the, that they sell. You know, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth of weapons sales. And then in addition to that, you have the contracts for maintenance, for spare parts, for training, all of that. The Saudis pay for it and the Emiratis pay for it. And so the US, this is big business for the U.S. Um, Yemen has a strategic location. It controls Bab el-Mandeb Strait, where, you know, it's kind of the gateway to and from uh, the Strait of um, um, Sina, the port of Sina. And so you have a strategically important location, and it's also been kind of the focus of previous U.S. administrations as this, quote-unquote, war on terror, right, um, through drone warfare and through the Bush administrations and the Obama administrations. So they have a strategic interest in Yemen. But if you look at what their interests are, I mean, everything they've done in Yemen contradicts their interests. So if the interest is national security, well, then you wouldn't be fighting the group who is actually very effective against Al-Qaeda, which are the Houthis. And you wouldn't be arming Al-Qaeda against the Houthis, which is exactly what the Saudi-led coalition has done and the U.S. continues to support. And if the worry is Iran, and they exaggerate Iran's role in this conflict, but They've also driven the Houthis closer to Iran. And so, um, you know, they've worked against this, their own interests in many ways, yet they continue supporting the coalition because first of all, huge financial gains. Second of all, it's a gigantic embarrassment to think that the Houthis who don't even have, you know, uh, an airplane, civilian airplane at their command, let alone, you know, bombing bombers or, you know, F-16s or helicopters or Apaches or whatnot um, are able to resist for so long and even, um, infiltrate into UAE and Saudi airspace, airspace through drones and missiles. So it's a hugely embarrassing um, outcome for the US and Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But I think it's a sunk cost fallacy. They keep throwing into this war, uh, given how much investment they've already had, instead of just realizing that they need to cut their losses and move away from this conflict that's caused nothing but destruction for the entire population of Yemen. We've been talking to Shireen Al-Adimi on the Sunday Dispatch about the conflict in Yemen. Shireen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Where can listeners find more from you or where should they be looking if they want to be informed or keeping up with what's happening in Yemen? Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. And I think uh, I, I do a lot of this uh, work publicly through Twitter, so people can find me on Twitter at Shireen818. Um, but, you know, that's where you also find a lot of Yemenis on the ground who have turned their cameras around to show us what's been happening around them. And that's why I joined Twitter actually on the day the war began to learn more from the ground on Yemen, uh, in Yemen to see what's really happening. And that's where a lot of mobilizing and organizing happens. So I encourage people to follow Yemenis on Twitter.